Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Um, we've got people listening now across all the podcast media as well as on YouTube. Um, so we're happy for that. And thank you very much for coming along and listening. Um, another guest today. Um, very happy to have Eric Bowmans uh, on the show today. Um, I think, Eric, we set this up a couple of months ago. So I appreciate you coming on. Um, the first question is always on our podcast is going to be kind of walk us through your career, walk us through kind of where you got started, um, what the path kind of looked like and what you're doing today. Sure. Yeah. Happy. I'm happy to be here. And yeah, it, I know we took a little tour to get to this day and I appreciate you um, keeping me in the, the calendar. So, so yeah, a little bit about me. Um, so I've been doing technology for um, longer than this century has been around. So um, going back to the beginning of the internet and earlier than that. And, and as I was working in technology, I actually also did not pursue technology as like an higher education. I was doing that as kind of the side project, if you will. So um, learned how to do web development, ended up in uh, working for dot-coms in Manhattan, so, you know, all that startup industry. And then they started crashing back in 2000, 2001. And it's like, oh, great, what are we, what am I going to do now? And so that lack of a proper comp sci degree um, started to kind of put some pressure on me back in back in those days. So, job market shrank so much for technologists in that area. Um, and so I actually decided around 2003, 2004 to go to law school and, and moved back down to Atlanta, Georgia, went to law school, graduated, passed the bar, became a licensed lawyer around 2007. Well, 2008 was a terrible time to look for a legal job because we had the next recession. And so, um, so kind of from my career there is bookend by these two recessions, went back to technology, but now with a law degree. It's like, what do we do here? And so ended up with working with a company that uh, had to go through two SAS 70 audits, which were kind of like what SOC 2s are now, but before we had the SOC 2, ECI compliance, helped with HIPAA compliance. And so a ton of um, kind of risk compliance work ended up being natural field for me to, to play in. And so that legal degree, that technology background merged right together and then kind of let me grow both on the technical side all the way up through some very sophisticated enterprise architecture, data engineering, um, but all the while keeping the the GRC that governance risk compliance view on everything that I was doing. And so it you know, unique circumstances, but kind of came together in a way that brought me to where I am today, which is as much a cybersecurity risk management compliance person as I am a lawyer or a technologist. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's curious. We speak to a lot of people on the podcast that are, have come out of the military or or have yeah. done kind of legal type stuff. So it's it's I think that certainly from a, a GRC point of view, I think it's quite a, a, an easy thing to pick up if you've come from that background. And I know John will dig a little bit deeper in, in a second on that kind of side of things. But I've got kind of an enterprise architecture background as well. I mean, I started off on a help desk and then kind of progressed and ended up being an enterprise architect. Um, I want to talk a little bit about zero trust and enterprise architecture. I, I run a YouTube channel. It's only got four or five videos on at the moment, but we're, I'm trying to grow it. And I'm trying to look at kind of architecture through the eyes of, of someone like me, but with zero trust in mind, because yeah. I think the way we've historically done things we we could do them better. I don't want to say they were wrong because we didn't think any differently, but I mean, we've created networks that are wide open and all the kind of architecture and everything we've done is kind of built on top of that kind of insecure mentality. And and I've tried over the last couple of years to adjust that because of it's things like inside a threat and ransomware. And that was kind of before I knew this kind of zero trusting existed. I mean, I'm over here on the island in the UK and we don't necessarily get the noise that you get as as quickly as you do, but it's coming over now. But I just wondered if you put your kind of architect hat on, what do you think about zero trust? Do you th see it as like this kind of buzzword or do you see it having kind of some teeth and, and going somewhere? Yeah, no, I think it's both. I think it is a buzzword in the sense that we see tons of companies all adver advertising their new zero trust product and their product may have absolutely nothing to do with what zero trust actually is about. <laughs> Yeah, but they have a zero trust <laughs> product because um, you have to, right? If you're in that business, the where it has teeth though is that the foundational principles of zero trust um, are absolutely a, a great thing to add. You mentioned, you know, a, a flat network with total trust, right? And 
and your workers were VPNing in. And so they had, as soon as they VPNed in, hopefully with MFA, but probably not back you know, five years ago, um, they now have network level access to every single resource in your. That was, like you said, five, 10 years ago, it kind of made sense because they needed to, right? They're going to connect all these servers. So of course we give them uh, flat access to everything. Um, and so to come back, step back from that and say, well, no, we, because that VPN account is going to get compromised. And now you've given the, the bad actor that same access that you had your user. Um, we can't trust any, any specific requests anymore the way we would have trusted it. And so the idea that we have that zero trust, right, that we're saying, we're only going to let you get as far as it makes sense for the context of your request. And then, oh, you want to access something else? Let's reestablish trust for that access. Oh, you need yet another more privileged thing? Let's go through that trust cycle again so that we're always, every request that you as a user are making being evaluated by a set of rules, which again, the sophistication varies by that product that you're using, um, but that you're always asking, is it really you? Do you really have permission to do this? And, and does it make sense in this context for you to do the thing that you're doing? Um, are great questions to ask at this point because you know that often now it's not the person who claims, claims yeah. to be. And I think historically we, we, I mean, I've been around since before the internet as well. And, and, and it, it grew organically. IT kind of grew organically from kind of the finance ERP system that sat under the finance person's desk. And then, they, they, there was no such thing really as a local area network. You cabled straight from people's desks back into the back of that system. And then kind of we had LANs and, and those LANs were kind of wide open, but they were still very minimal. I mean, in my first ever job, I only had four or five people accessing the ERP system. The LAN was tiny. And then kind of email came along and then everybody needed email. It wasn't just your sales team, it was everybody. And even over the last... I guess five to seven years, we've gone from there. I, I worked in manufacturing companies. So we had a lot of people on the manufacturing floor still never had a computer or never had any access. But then there were things that they would need to do online. They would get paid online. They would have to go online and do webinars and li listen to training. So you ended up with literally everybody be given an account. And it was really then that I thought, okay, I've created global MPLS networks before SD-WAN came along. Um, and I've put everybody on this network. And it, 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 I think the thing that really kind of woke me up was when people's laptops started going missing. Um, and you would find out from them, oh, yeah, I, I had a password, but I wrote it on a post-it note, and it was in the bag with my laptop. And then you'd log into your firewall, and you'd check your VPN, and you'd be like, you've been logging in for the last two hours, but you claim your PC was stolen three days ago. And you didn't tell us maybe three days ago, you've literally just told us now, and then you have to figure out where that person's gone. And I mean, you knew they could go wherever they wanted and you yep. had tools in place, probably if you were lucky that could trace where that user has been going, but that didn't help you. I mean, that's like coming in your house and going, Oh yeah, there's a thief been in here and all my stuff's gone. But I, the good thing, what well, I say, the good thing, but if someone breaks into your house, at least you can probably tell stuff's missing. If somebody's on your network and take stuff, well, you don't necessarily know what they've taken. And right. so for me, the whole kind of concept of, of zero trust is like, okay, not only give people access only to the things that they should have access to, but that leads on to limiting that blast radius. I mean, if someone opens a, a risky email, even though they've been trained, they, they may still do it. It's going to go everywhere. I mean, it could potentially infect everything you've got access to, which in theory is everything on a LAN or a WAN. Or if you're at home, it traverses over the VPN, goes on your LAN and WAN, and still goes everywhere. And that that scared me. Um, yeah. But, John, I'll let you ask the question. I think you were going to ask around kind of GRC and stuff like that. Yeah, before we get there, um, I am curious. Um, you probably have some exposure, uh, experience with zero trust. Um, Thoughts on who should lead that project? Uh, should it be the CISO? Should it be the CIO? Should it be somebody within the business? Um, have, you, have you had those conversations? And any thoughts on who might want to be ahead of that or running that project? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and I'm one of the people who advocates for the separation of the CISO and the CIO role, right? So they should be 
um, peers or at least separate organizations, however you structure that um, so that you have that accountability, cross-accountability, if you will. And, and so then you immediately end up with the problem of, well, the CISO is probably the one saying, we need to implement zero trust. We need to have policies and procedures that isolate and protect information. Great. Now you said we need to have it, but the CIO is the one, the CTO is the one who's stuck with the systems that need all these policies. And so uh, I think practically, right, those projects are going to fall under the CIO's domain because it is the CIO's systems that they're responsible for making sure um, are up operational and meeting the, the business's requirements. Um, but it's always going to be with the CISO's guidance and input and, and direction of how much do we need to invest in that? How much is too much security, right? It's more of a cost analysis, a risk analysis that we're hoping the CISO is there to talk about. Um, so that it is partnership, strong partnership between the two. But in terms of actually implementation of the project, I still think it falls to the CIO. Yeah, I, I agree, because what I've seen is usually the, the CISO doesn't hold the purse strings. Uh, the CIO tends yeah. to have the budget. And if you go even further down, it's you know some director of infrastructure that really controls that budget and, and where it's allocated. Um, another question along the same lines, um, how, how have you seen the business case made for zero trust? Um, it's not really something you can say, hey, this is a, a, a scare tactic, uh, something that in the past was was leveraged uh, by the security role. Um, but uh, how how have you seen that uh, that case made that, you know, hey, we need to invest these resources? Because at the end of the day, you're taking resources away from projects that, uh, you know, could increase revenue or, or um could you know open up a new avenue for the business, uh, or it's just you know keeping the lights on. You're pulling resources away from that. Um, how have you seen that business case made? So it always has to be a risk conversation. If it if it's a tool or product or technology, it's pretty much dead in the water because to your point, you're you're asking me to buy yet another thing when I have already so many things that I've bought that should be doing this right. So back it up to the the risk conversation of. What, what likelihood do we think this bad thing could happen? And then what's this going to cost us when it does, right? If it's going to put us out of business, well, that's a worst case example. If that's a big deal. We can probably back some math into the what's it worth, what investment is it worth to not be shut down? Take a more realistic, hopefully realistic example of what well, we're going to get fined or we'll lose this revenue or lose this client. Again, what is the cost of avoiding that loss? So it, it becomes, it's a, reverse ROI at that point, right? I'm avoiding a potential loss versus investing in a potential profit. Um, if you can put it in that terminology, if you can if you can get really good at that risk calculation, then it's a little bit easier business case. Um, the, the problem is what's the likelihood of it happening is where you're going to probably have your argument, right? Because um, you're going to have a lot of people say, oh, don't, we're not worried about that. It's not going to happen unless you're in an organization where it already has happened. And then the calculation flips really fast the other way, and they become very interested in how do they invest in protecting against it happening again. So that's kind of that, to your point of scare tactics, a realistic, if you haven't had it happen to your organization yet, how do you have an honest and, and open conversation about, well, it's not an if, it's a when at this point in, in history, right? Are we prepared for that to happen when it inevitably happens? Are we also doing all the other things, zero trust, Talking about that right now, so that when it happens, the blast radius is small, right? So that we have invested to protect the overall scope of the damage, so that we're not because um, the hundred it's one hundred percent likely that it will happen. Now we're playing with how big the impact is instead. So I, I was lucky to to have a conversation with the board of directors this week. So one of the topics that came up with cybersecurity insurance and and kind of zero trust, and there being maybe a, a, a maturity model. So we were talking about investing in cyber and one of their comments was, and maybe this is already happening, I don't know, but one of their comments was, let's say it's X amount to buy cyber insurance, but if you spend Y amount on zero trust products, which I don't believe in, but let's say we invest in a zero trust strategy, we buy some products and we protect ourselves. Can we get us like a little scorecard that says we're now level four or level five, therefore our cybersecurity insurance goes from X to 
x divided by two and we can offset the money we were paying on cyber insurance to to buy the products now that's great in kind of a dream world of, of being able to do that i guess in the back of my mind i'm like the cyber insurance people don't really want you doing that they want to keep premiums high i mean that's kind of they're in business to do that yeah but it is in their interest to not have to pay out on those premiums so if they if we can come up with and we spoke to the csa about this me and john on a podcast with jim Rivas, we spoke about this being this maturity model where you can attain level one or attain level three or attain level five or whatever it may be but i guess my biggest concern is we've all been audited we've all had people come in and a lot of those audits are tick this box tick this box and and there's no real need to be careful how i say this but there's no real evidence necessarily of of some of those not all of them but some of them you just literally go have you got an edr or an xdr yes why is it configured on your estate can you prove that it's on 99.99% so what do you think of that do you think that that's likely like from an insurance point of view or do you think it's a good idea to even have like this zero trust like maturity model? So definitely a maturity model, whether it's a zero trust one or just a cybersecurity posture one, right? Zero trust yep. being a component of that. Uh, I think that's very realistic, very likely to happen for two reasons. One, you mentioned they like to charge the higher premiums, but the truth is they just want to have the profit profitable premiums, right? They want the yeah, like if they could have really low premiums and be more profitable because they know that you've done all the right things, they've asked for evidence and they feel comfortable insuring you at that rate, it's still profitable. That that's probably more valuable than I'm gonna charge you a really high premium because I also know you're going to get breached. I'm gonna pay out on it is not yeah. not also okay. their interest. Um and what we've seen, right, is very recently the carriers are actually not covering claims because you're right. Somebody said, yeah, we have MFA. Well, the breach happens, they file the claim and they, the investigation comes to the point. Well, the breach happened on an account that didn't have MFA. You told us that when you applied for the insurance, you had MFA. So we're not gonna cover your claim. You paid us the premium, but that claim's not covered because we didn't ask for evidence at the time of, of the application we are asking for the evidence at the yeah. time of the claim and we're not going to cover you. And so you're now as a business saying, I'm paying a ton of money for cybersecurity insurance that might not actually cover my claims. Well, then I probably need to back my way back into the application and, and do the things that I, I claim that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not saying anyone lied because it's very easy to say, yes, you have MFA and also not have MFA on a particular account, right? That is just the nature. Um, so not a thing that we don't think necessarily people are lying that's a different problem if they are but when it comes down to the actual claim the actual incident were you doing the things in that case that you claim to be doing and that's what they priced your insurance yeah. on right so see i i drive this silly little car that there's a picture up here and it's a lotus elise and and insuring it is troublesome because they ask you a question has it been modified well Yes, it has. I mean, it's it's like triggered broom, and that probably won't make any sense to Americans. But anyway, um, not much of it is original anymore. So when I insure it, they're like, can you list all the bits that aren't original? And my answer is always, can I just tell you the bits that are? Um, because somebody ran into the back of me in a petrol station. I mean, I was stopped filling up with petrol or gas, as you call it. I wasn't in the car, and someone hit me. And they tried to claim, the insurance company said to me, that because the fuel cap wasn't original, they weren't going to pay out. They obviously did pay out in the end because I wasn't yeah. even in the car. I mean, I'm stood there filling up. Like, how's the fuel cap got to do anything? But that's the thing. I think yeah. you need to make sure if you are completing any type of kind of insurance form or audit or anything that you are sure. Yes. And I think, I think we all know that we don't always know what's on our network. When they turn around and go, do you have an XDR? Yes, I do. Is it on every machine? I, I believe so. I mean, it's really hard. And that's, we talk a lot about zero trust on this podcast, but we talk about getting the fundamentals right. And to me, a lot of that are the fundamentals. You, you need to know, before you can start any journey, you need to know where you are today. 
or you or you're going to start walking and going down the journey and you don't know you don't even know where you started which is impossible um but john back to you for for yeah your- and i think that's a great segue into you know we've talked about insurance and and what the insurers are looking for and and um you know how they're how they're perceiving the the landscape uh but what we're now seeing is uh, government getting involved so uh, in the united states there's at least 45 states that have some sort of legislature in place or in preparing or debating and it could be as simple as you know protecting pii uh but we're also starting to see more um cybersecurity uh, style regulations coming into place uh new york dfs is a great example of this um the biden administration zero trust uh executive order and then recently there was a there was a conversation in politico about um, regulating or imposing some sort of uh, standards on the cloud giants in terms of security. Um, so we, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how to create that business case for zero trust, um, how you can reduce some of your premiums potentially with insurance. But now with regulation becoming much more prescriptive, uh, this idea, this this GRC is really kind of starting to rise uh, in in prominence. So. From your perspective, uh, how are you how are you approaching it? What are you hearing uh, in your side of the business regarding some of this legislation? And what are your thoughts? Is is it is it right for the government to get involved? Uh, is it right for the government to you know start to set that that bar uh, up higher? So you know you got to be X tall to ride the ride. Um, what's what's your what's your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, and this is where the part of the program where I have to add my disclaimer that so while I am a lawyer, nothing that I'm going to say is legal advice, and anyone who's listening should seek advice with their own counsel um, for their own particular details. But happy to kind of explore that at a, a high level and and kind of an approach and um, more from the GRC side than like the legal side, right? Um, and so I'm going to try to unpack some of your questions. Um, at a super high level, should the government get involved? And then just say a blanket, yes, there is a point where they should be. Now the details are where it matters, right? And how far do they go and, and how prescriptive do they get um, is where I'd say at some point they need to shift that back to industry. Um, there's nothing worse than, um, I'm gonna take it to an example of if you're a vendor and you get a client contract and in that contract, they're trying to dictate your password policy. Like, no. I have my password policy. I'm not going to create a new password policy just for you, client by contract, right? Because a lot of times those those terms were written eight years ago, and so they don't actually follow best practice. And so, so back that back up to the the government and the regulation, whether it's federal, state, or otherwise. If they're getting that prescriptive, then they're going to create more problems than benefits because these fields changed way too fast for a uh, regulation or a law to dictate down to methodology or technology or or practice, those have to be left up to um, perhaps, perhaps standards boards, but, but definitely the industry because it changes so fast. Just the idea that um, passwords is a great example, right? What we thought was a great password 15 years ago is terrible advice now. And, and even NIST has caught up to that. And NIST has a pretty good standard on that, but also is about to be outdated as, as the password list technologies come into the fold, uh, we want to be able to enable those. Those are actually a more secure option than than the current guidance. So we don't want to be stuck in a a regime, a, a regulatory framework that doesn't allow us to adopt newer, more secure practices. Um, so I think the answer I said yes because otherwise we end up with patchwork uh, regulation, which is more difficult. It's kind of that example of the clients dictating your password policies. Now you have 100 policies in this US, right? We'd have 50 different regulatory environments for security, for privacy, uh, plus GDPR, plus UK, plus Canada, plus like it just becomes a compliance um, nightmare at that point because at some point those policies will conflict with each other. So you have to build a system that's sophisticated enough to understand. Oh, this person's from California, this one's from Utah, this one's from the UK, this one's from the EU. I have to behave differently as a system because of that, right? And so uh, huge compliance pain points um, if you're trying to 
honor all those regulations and and do the the correct thing, it just becomes too expensive to comply, honestly. Yeah, I think what will happen is it, it very much like what happens in the United States is California, New York, one of these states is going to propose you know some sort of standards. Let's call it passwords. That your your passwords must be ten characters. Uh, you must institute MFA. Uh, Utah may say it might be six characters. MFA is not important, um, but what happens is eventually that higher standard uh, becomes where industry, you know, puts their mark. Um, that's kind of how I see it playing out is it, it's going to get to the point where you've got to get, you know, this, the bar is set here and that's where the bar is going to be. Um, I think the other challenge is, I, I think you, you're dead on there. Um People in the government and, and the people making the rules, the legislature, writing the, the, the bills and so on and so forth are not technical experts. Um, and they tend to water down or have a, a wrong interpretation of the technology. Um, and I think that's a lot of times where the rub is going to happen uh, with, you know, if at some point uh, the government does get involved in this. And it, it seems like they are interested in doing that uh, due to the number and you know, the, the number of ransomware attacks um, constantly in the news, uh, employee data leaked out, uh, PII from customer data leaked out. Um, there really is a challenge within the industry uh, around security. And um, I'm still trying to figure out how, you know, we get to that point where this isn't a problem anymore. Uh, yeah. But we'll see. Yeah. And just to, real quick, you also asked about you know, some of the liability shifting that the government's looking at, right, to cloud providers, to uh, presumably device manufacturers, ISPs, right? Because, yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, it's my Windows PC connected to my AT&T internet using Azure services where the breach happens, right? Uh, so is it my fault or is it Microsoft's fault is, is that question at this point, um, especially if it's not me, if it's the an average user who doesn't know what they're supposed to, you know, they haven't been trained. They don't have the right software. All those things. Um, to that liability shifting, I think is is interesting. I I'm not sure I'm yet a fan of it because I do think that it's. I'd say I'd rather see a little bit more incentivizing new solutions because I think technology can get better and improve that a lot. Um, but do it through incentive rather than penalty would be my current uh, mind on that topic. But but at the same time. Yeah, if if a manufacturer or a service provider is is genuinely negligent and the harm cause is caused because of that, then we already have negligence laws, but maybe there is a little bit more. I, I think you you raised the point about kind of innovation. I think that's a good one. I mean, as we all know, a lot of these kind of regulations are quite old and they don't necessarily move as fast as technology. So if you set the bar quite low and everyone gets there, then what is the incentive to continue companies firstly continue to innovate? And secondly, what what encourages people to spend the money to to have better tech? So if you set it as a six letter password, and it's very simple, and you've got tools that do it already, and you just leave it and everyone reaches that bar. If it's not actually protecting people, we're not stopping those compromises. Then more people are going to get compromised and that's the only thing that's going to in, like kind of increase innovation is because people are getting compromised it's not actually because they're trying to meet a certain need now we've got some regulation in the uk we've got this thing called cyber essentials to get the basic cyber essentials i mean you shouldn't be in business if you can't already tick that box because it's that easy but it's that easy that it's it's almost pointless because you don't need to do anything so I guess maybe there needs to be more technical people keeping those documents up to date, which kind of brings me on to something I was thinking about when you were talking that we talked recently um, about having more technical focused people on the board. And we talked a little bit about the CIO and the CISO should be maybe a separate role. Um, but those people, although they may have a, a C in their title, aren't necessarily always on the board. The CISO most often they're not reports into the CIO in a lot of cases. And in a lot of industries, the CIO still reports into the CFO. Um, so you're taking kind of this 
regulatory stuff and the technology stuff and you're and you're sitting down and explaining it to people that don't have that kind of background do you see that being a problem uh, and how do you think we can better educate those people and i know we have to kind of dumb down technology me and john and, and no doubt you've done that over the years you've had to kind of explain in less technical terms to people but i think the bar has been raised i think technology and and cyber is so imperative to every business now that maybe that level needs to be higher i mean it's like you can't really run a restaurant unless you understand food i mean you, and and i think the bar is at that point do you see that changing or do you think that needs to change i know the um in the us the security exchange commission the sec is released some draft um, guidance that they're having asking for feedback on that would, if it were made into a rule, would require boards of public companies to have cybersecurity expertise on the board, right? And so, but I, there's obviously a movement toward what you're exactly what you're talking about. Um, but we shouldn't necessarily wait for government regulation, just the conversation yeah. we just had, to do the right thing. And, and so, yes, how do we make sure our um, boards for companies? How do we make sure the the CEO and the CFO are effectively being briefed on the risks to their business and that also the the, the options and solutions to to mitigate that risk right going back to my, my earlier comment is it has to be a risk conversation it's not a technology conversation it's yeah. not a um it's not a policy conversation it's you're running a business you know food but also you understand the risks around food right like foodborne illness is a risk in food you can't be a chef without understanding the proper cooking temperatures. Um, likewise, you're the CEO of a public or private company. You have to understand the risks to your business just as well as you do understand the the way to operate your business. And so, yes, is the answer to your question. It's an easy answer. Um, the education has to increase at the board and the those kind of key executive roles. Um, and either that's because the ESO or the compliance or the other those risk positions are in elevated positions. Um, but also what I do see with a lot of organizations now is the the CISO is doing regular reporting to the board. So even if the board doesn't yeah. have the expertise on it, they are getting at least a monthly snapshot of the cybersecurity health of their business that they're that they're charged with governing so that at least they know um, with measurable metrics. Are we doing better? Are we at risk? Do we need to invest more? Um, and so that monthly reporting is is a great first step in that awareness. See, I, I think kind of cyber is going to progress a bit like ID did in general. I mean, it wasn't really that long ago that most companies just had a PC technician or IT person, and that person went around and fixed computers. Over the years, as IT became kind of more embedded in businesses, then you started to see more kind of senior IT people. And it yeah. was probably that person that was a technician 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and then they kind of, as the, the cloud kind of came around and it became even more important to have IT because without IT, the business wouldn't run, then those people became the CIO. And what's happening, I guess, now is what we're familiar with was InfoSec or IT security has now become kind of cyber. However, we probably can't move at that slow pace we did before because it took quite a long time for businesses, I think, to realize that, oh, yeah, this isn't a cost center anymore. This is a business enabler. If we take that amount of time again with cyber, well, everyone is going to get compromised. But also, there aren't necessarily the same number of folks out there. I mean, we see, and we'll get onto this in a minute, what you do on LinkedIn trying to help people find work, but we see a lot of entry level positions but it's like going back 20 years when there were a lot of it technicians there were very few few cios because actually it will take 5 10 15 years to 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 kind of grow into that role and actually you can take a really really good it person and they don't necessarily need to understand the business at all they can still fix computers and they understand the network and they understand cloud i think we need security folks now that understand not just the technology, but need to understand the culture of the business, 
what the business makes, what it manufactures, where the risks are, because they need a more encompassing view. And I just don't see there being that many people at that level. And what what you do see at the moment is a lot of people like yourself or me or John that have kind of done the technology side, kind of pivoting, pivoting over into being a CISO. But I'm not necessarily sure or convinced that people in that kind of old historic CIO kind of networking role have the mentality or the business awareness. There are some, don't get me wrong. Um, but what do you think? How do you think we're going to fill that void of the CISO? It, do, are we literally just going to have to wait for those entry-level people to kind of grow up into that role? Or is there somebody else quite suited to being a CISO that isn't maybe from an IT background? I think that's... Um... It's a great point as as I see uh, a lot of a lot of people are asking how do I become you know how do I get involved in cybersecurity how do I become a cybersecurity professional and one of the things that is unique I think to cybersecurity is um, because the the people who are working against the the bad actors out there they don't have a fixed career path to get into to that side right they are coming in from every every world every every role typically technical just because of the attack side is more technical. Um, you also have that opportunity here to pull from a wide variety of of different disciplines and teach them what they need to know to understand cybersecurity, infosecurity, the risk side of it. Again, because you know, I think uh, risk management is not a technology thing. We don't typically think in that term. So there's a whole discipline of risk managers that out there that we probably can start to to pull into that. Um, you mentioned business, understanding the business. I, I've talked to several folks who they have the business background and now they're learning what they need to learn from a cybersecurity risk management perspective and, and headed down that path. So I think we pull from the, the broader, the, the more diverse pool into these roles, we're going to do better than, yeah. and we're going to get there faster. Because if we say to your point, uh, if you don't have a background in networking and technology, don't apply then we're going to miss out on a whole bunch of people who are going to be great at what the CISO and that security role actually are, yep. which is risk risk management and, and compliance, not te technical. We still need the technical. We still need people who can configure firewalls and configure app, right application security. All that still matters. Um, but that is kind of the same people that are doing it today, yep. just trained on secure practices. So I think that that leads us quite nicely to my, my next question. I I see you come up on LinkedIn quite a lot and, and you've always got a whole bunch of people that are open for work and you're trying to help them out. And what, what's the background behind that? And, and why is that kind of important to you? It, it comes across, and this is the first time we've spoken in person, but it certainly comes across on, on LinkedIn that you're, you're really trying to help people. Um, so what's the background behind that? Yeah. Um, so I got more involved in LinkedIn uh, almost a year ago, last July. Um, just started sharing stories and seeing how LinkedIn worked, honestly, right? I think we've yeah. all kind of been on that voyage of discovery together over the last 12 months. Um, and as I did that, one of the things, obviously, resonating is people who share their stories of how they got to where they are today. And that was a, a good thing to to see and, and to, to participate in. Um, and then as we led up toward the end of the year, it obviously flipped kind of around from an economic perspective, more layoffs started happening and people started looking for work. And it became one of those things where um, you can you can log into LinkedIn and you'll see lots of people open to work. And 99% of them you probably have never met and never will. And so it's easy to be impersonal and say, it's, it's unfortunate that it happened to you, but I don't know you, right? And so then when you do start to see it as people that you know as well, you're like, this is getting to... This is becoming personal, right? At this point, yeah. So for me, um, it was that kind of combination of seeing it happen at a higher pace at the end of the year, at the beginning of this year, uh, seeing some folks that I actually knew here in the Atlanta area impacted. Um, how can I use the platform that I had been building, that we've all been building together, honestly, um, to highlight the people that are looking? So it started out with you know, two to three people that I actually knew. And then other people say, hey, how do I be included? And so just 
short answer. If anyone's wondering, how do you get included? You just message that it's a free yes to everybody. I'm not, there's no filters here other than making sure that you actually are a real person and not a bot. Yeah. Um, so if you are a real person and you're looking and you ask, the answer is yes. And that way it, it's naturally inclusive. There's no criteria. It's international. And from my perspective, the volume hasn't gotten to the point where I have to, to kind of put on filters from a time management perspective, right? It's about four people per week who are contacting me, which is a tiny number. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it also makes it more impactful for those four people, right? Uh, focusing on four people is much better than 50 in terms of being able to have an impact. So the roots are realizing that there is an opportunity to help, an ability to help, and and then just finding that way to do that. And so far, it's, like I said, it's been a, I feel like a great use of my time yeah, well, is helping people. See, one of the things I like about LinkedIn is, and certainly the cyber community is, everybody seems to be friendly and i think that's really good because we're in this fight together i mean the bad guys are, are, are teaming up and fighting against us so we need to be in it together so but for me i've always liked face-to-face -face events i like events where you can go and talk and share stories and you help each other and and i used to quite often go to kind of job events where people were looking for work and I wasn't looking for work at the time, but I may know people in the industry and I may be able to say, I know so-and-so is, or this company is, or that company is. So I've spent some time, I guess, over the last year trying to kind of grow my LinkedIn network, but really just to share content. Um, and if people come up and they're, they're open to work and I do get a lot of people just randomly send me CVs with no kind of, hello, I'm this person, I'm that person. And I, I have to admit, I do struggle with that, but I have helped some people that have reached out and said kind of things like, I know you're really, really busy. I like what you're doing. Could you possibly take a look at my CV? Um, yep. And, and it, it is growing and there, there will come a point where I don't, I don't have the time to look at everything, but LinkedIn for me is, there's a wider audience. If you turn up to a 20 person event or 30 person event, fine. You can walk around, you can shake hands, you can kind of introduce yourself. And those people have helped me. There's loads of people on LinkedIn like yourself that I'm seeing doing really positive stuff that have helped me try and be positive and help me through changing roles and kind of struggling a little bit in the beginning, not really knowing what I was doing. So for me, it's about paying back. So if I can help one person a day, and I, and what I mean by helping someone is even if they they smile because me and John are joking about pizza or whatever else we're doing, and it puts a little bit of kind of fun into someone's life and maybe helps motivate them if they're looking for work and they're struggling, then then I think those kind of things are good. And certainly for me, LinkedIn's a lot better than sitting on TikTok scrolling through videos or Instagram or whatever it might be. Right. I don't want to bash those those if that's what you want to do fine but i just i just see it is quite a friendly and and i am starting to get a lot more people trying to connect to me that aren't real people yes and then they're that. trying to sell me stuff and sell me certs or they're not even real um but john before we pivot on to kind of some fun stuff because i just looked at the clock and realized it's ticking quite quickly anything you want to ask before we get to the fun stuff or no, i, I think I'd, I'd rather just go on to the fun stuff this has been a great conversation and liked, you know, where we've gone with the scope of it. And, uh, but I think it's time to have some fun. Always time to have fun. So well, one of the questions, Eric, I always try and ask people, and it started off with, tell me about your best ever food. Um, now it's more a case of tell me more about your best food experience. So it doesn't need to be that whatever you ate was great. It could be you were with family or friends or in a great environment, but what was what kind of is your best food event? We'll call it or experience. A, it's an awesome question, um, and and I know sometimes you might ask about travel too. So I'm going to mix them together a little bit because the easiest way for me to answer that question is I like to eat something local, right? When I do travel, I want to yep. understand the food of of where I am um, because there's a McDonald's everywhere, and it does vary if you travel at least far enough away from the U.S. McDonald's are slightly different. There's still McDonald's though. And so how do you find that local food? And so, um, for example, I've had the fortune of traveling to um, Alaska for work um, nice. and, and personally as well, because I have family there, but 
when I'm there, it's like you have to eat local Pacific seafood, right? That is the the food to eat there. And so um, we're at a restaurant in Anchorage and one of the people who traveled there before is like, you have to try the halibut cheeks. I don't know what halibut cheeks are. I know what a halibut is, but um, not a fish. And that, I don't know the fish anatomy, right? So I'm like, sure, we'll try that. And if you haven't ever had halibut cheeks, they are amazing, right? They are um, kind of a scallop lobster fish combo concept. Like it's almost impossible to describe um, such that I looked up, well, how do I get halibut cheeks in Atlanta? And the answer is you don't because they go to Anchorage first, Seattle second, and then they're pretty much all gone by the time you get this far east without special order or whatever. So last time I went to Anchorage, I'm like, we're going to walk to the restaurant and we're going to have, I'm going to have halibut cheeks because this is a want. This is the only place on earth that I know I can eat them. Um, and so just that kind of idea of eat that local food and then figure out once you've enjoyed it, now how do I go back there? <laughs> right? Like not, Anchorage is an amazing place. It's an amazing, Alaska is an amazing place to visit. But when I'm there, I'm also going to eat halibut cheeks. Yeah. See, see it's <laughs> the, because I've pivoted the question, and I've never told John this before, but I'll, I'll tell him now. I think one of my best food experiences was the first meal I ever had with John. And that sounds very odd, but we never met before. We'd talked on the phone and we were at OSA. And we, firstly, we met and John's like, let's go for a walk. And I'm like, great, somebody wants a walk. We were wearing almost matching clothes, same color trousers, same color top. I don't know if you remember, John, but we walked along. Fisherman's Wharf, I think. You, was yeah, it was, it, right? the, it was the Embarcadero. So, so we walked the hotel, along there. The hotel, the hotel was on the Embarcadero, yep. so you can walk all the way around uh, to Fisherman's Wharf. So we walked all the way along there. We got to Fisherman's Wharf, and I'm thinking, if John says we're going to eat on Fisherman's Wharf, I'm probably not going to like him as much as I do today because not the greatest of food. John pops out of his phone, looks, and said there's a really good Thai restaurant not far, a couple of blocks away. And I thought at that moment, I'm going to like this man. Like it's the same food as me. And John, I've never told you that, but it was like, to, I knew we were going to work really, really closely together in the roles we were doing. And I thought we've got on okay on the phone, but if we can't make some kind of bond, this isn't going to be as much fun as it's been. So I remember that. And I don't particularly remember the food being great. I think it was all right. Don't get me wrong. But it was the fact that we could sit and have Thai food. And I'm like, we like the same kind of food. He's still trying to get me to eat stuff I'm not going to eat. But he is broadening my horizons. Um, but anyway, John, let's pass to you. Maybe you can ask one question and then we'll wrap. Yeah. So what uh, and, and I've got to ask, uh, was it only Anchorage that you went to or did you travel to other parts of Alaska? Uh, just the Anchorage region. So okay. out to the some of the landscape in the area, but not, not other okay. cities. All right. Yeah, when um, you have the opportunity, uh, there are other parts of Alaska, which is absolutely amazing. Um, I remember I was working in the Kenai area as a kid. I was working at the the, the fisheries, <laughs> processing fish. Uh, you'd work uh, 12 to 18 hours when the, the fish came in. And uh, uh, there was a, a place uh, that had um, endless crab. So... You would get your Alaska King crab, your Dungeness crab, and uh, all you can eat. Uh, I don't know if it's still there or not, but uh, uh, that was an amazing food experience because uh, I grew up as a kid. My father was in the military and he was stationed on one of the islands on the Aleutian chain. And that's where the crab came in. So as a young kid, I developed a, a taste for it. Yeah. Anyway, um, my question was going to be, uh, what do you do in your spare time? What uh, what what are your passion things to to kind of break away from work? Um, you mean other than LinkedIn? Um, <laughs> obviously that, that takes a bit of, of that spare time right now, but, um, astronomy is probably the, the easiest answer there. Um, I grew up in uh, the North Georgia mountains, which had pretty light pollution skies. And so you know, nice. grew up just seeing the stars, seeing the Milky Way, seeing the planets, um, meteor showers, all that kind of stuff is just, it's there. You just step outside. And so grew up with that, um, my brother was very much into it as well, so just strong influence. And so um, trying to recreate that in a light-polluted city of Atlanta, uh, we have a decent telescope that we'll take out when the nights are clear. And at least you can see the planets, you can see the moon. Yeah. Um, the comet, a few, 
weeks ago, right? We we spent quite a few hours freezing trying to find a comment, and so um, in light pollution. So yeah, I think that's probably the one thing that um, kind of recurs. I, I love outdoors. Yeah. I lots of things I like to do, but if there's one thing that I can say, I've done it several times this year. That's going to be some kind of astronomy um, exercise. So I, I'm very lucky to be going to Jordan uh, in a couple of weeks, and we're going to be staying out in the desert. And we have booked a, a, a tent-like dome that has um, a clear sky, and obviously there's, there's nothing there. I mean, it's a desert, so we get to look up at the stars and stuff, so it should be, should be good fun. Um, yeah. But I want, to, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, I know we had to rearrange a few times. I apologize, but it's been it's been great and insightful. We'd love you to come back again at some point in the future. Sure. Um, John, anything you want to add before we wrap? No, no, it's another uh, great conversation on the edge. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SEC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.